To begin with this morning, I don't think I've ever in all my life heard a sermon on, the, on this subject. Uh, ever. I'm only 42, so I'm only a spring chicken, so I've still got more of my life to go. But I've never in all my life heard a sermon on the subject that we're going to consider today. We've been thinking about what makes a healthy church. And uh, just as an aside, I've been so encouraged by this series. I think it's really highlighted the sense of uh, togetherness and cooperation and love that should be the hallmark of any church family that is seeking to be a healthy one. But uh, we're turning now to, uh, where are we up to? Mark number seven. And uh, we're going to think today about what the Bible teaches about church discipline. I should say at the beginning now, as a, as a rider, just as a caveat, that we're not doing this series to get at any one in particular, okay? And we're not talking about church discipline because there's some kind of subtle thing that we're kind of hedging around to get to. This is really part of a series on what it means to be a healthy church. So I don't want you to be oversensitive and think you're only doing this because you're saying something to me. This is not um, aimed. I think it's really important that when people are preaching in church that they don't use the pulpit as a vehicle to get at people. Uh, what we're trying to do is look at what the Bible says at this subject. So if you're feeling sensitive, you can relax. Uh, hopefully you can anyway. Uh, it is true, isn't it, that any area of life requires discipline. Uh, to be healthy and a church really is no different uh, to that but I think this is seen as a really scary subject and I think part of the reason for that is that there are such extremes and partly because I think our culture has issues with the whole subject of discipline it just sounds so authoritarian doesn't it and harsh and um I think um, one, of, one of the problems is that we've got this idea that our churches should be all about being welcoming and non-threatening and not intimidating. And of course, in many ways, that is all true. And we want to work for that. We do work for that. We have a sign outside that says a church for people who don't go to church. Um, but we get so caught up in that, don't we, that we fall into the trap of never wanting to cause offence never wanting to say anything that might question. Um, we shy away from having any sort of uh, standards uh, for fear of offending someone. And what happens is that the church gradually becomes a sort of toothless, charitable, nice environment rather than being a living, dynamic, uh, local representation of the body of Christ. For some of us, the idea of church discipline will send shudders down our spines, make the hairs on the back of our necks stand on end. We think of people being excommunicated, ostracised, the Spanish Inquisition. We perhaps think of power and control and intrusion. We can all think, I'm sure, of scary leaders who want their own way and bully their congregations into submission. So I want us to think about this subject and uh, try and see what the Bible says about being a healthy church in relation to this idea of discipline. 
Okay? So we're going to ask a series of questions. Um, what is discipline generally? What does the Bible say about how church discipline should work? Why is it even important? And what can we learn here today on this lovely day about this subject of church discipline? How will this shape the way that we do church and uh, as we relate to one of those individuals? So they're the four questions that we're going to think about in the next uh, few minutes. So, without further ado, uh, first of all, what is discipline? Um, let's talk about um, discipline generally. I suppose the first thing to say is that we all need discipline, don't we? We should, we should all recognise, shouldn't we, our need of uh, shaping and correction and uh, the assumption here and I hope you'll agree with it is that none of us are yet perfect none of us are the finished article including leaders all together in a church family none of us are yet complete we need to be encouraged and challenged we need to be taught and inspired we need to be helped when we're discouraged. We need to be nurtured and trained. Some of us might be a little wild and, and need to be broken and tamed. Some of us might be so hesitant and shy that we need care and attention to enable us to blossom and flourish properly. None of us are complete. We all need discipline in our lives Abby read to us uh, from Ephesians chapter 4 and um, that little section that Paul talks about there isn't really a traditional one that talks about church discipline but it does talk about church life and uh, twice Paul talks about the ultimate goal of the church and um, he says in verse uh, 12 and 13 Paul longs for the church the body of Christ to be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What Paul's longing for is that the people in the church in Ephesus would all increasingly become like Jesus is, that they would together become mature and reflect something of Christ-likeness in their behaviour. He says the same thing in verse 15. Instead of speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So the idea here is one of growth, maturity, change, transformation. The Christian life is a journey in which we should all be making progress towards maturity. In that chapter, in that passage that Abby read, it is, in fact, the whole reason why Christ raises up leaders uh, with gifts. It says God, Jesus has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the whole body might be built up. So this is the whole point why we're here. We're going somewhere together, corporately. I think it will help us. There are two kinds of discipline in life. Uh, generally, and I want to say it like this because I think this will help us to understand why this subject becomes negative sometimes. 
We, we might talk in life about formative discipline and corrective discipline. Okay? You understand that? Two different sides. Even in the realm of sport, if you're an athlete, there'll be things you should do uh, and there'll be things that you shouldn't do. We've got the Olympics coming up and uh, if, you, if you're going to do well in the Olympics, you, there are some things you're going to have to do and there are some things that you're going to leave out and not do. Some of that's formative, some of it's corrective. Formative discipline is the positive side. And keep this picture in your mind. Formative discipline is like the stake in the ground that helps the little sapling to grow straight and into a tree and not be blown over or grow in a sideways. Formative discipline is like the stake that enables the tree to grow and become strong. Every day, in hundreds of ways, is it not the case that we're being shaped in formative ways? And often in positive ways, it happens in our relationships, in our families, in our schools. We're taught and we're given examples. We're encouraged. My kids come home and they show me we've been learning how to do long multiplication. They don't, they don't teach it nowadays like they taught it in my day. And they've, they've got these little diagrams that they draw. and I'm sure in the end it's the same thing. The answer this seems, to get, seems to be right. But what, what's happening at school is that they're, they're subjecting themselves to formative discipline, aren't they? They're learning things. From a church point of view, we too have a sense of positive, encouraging, formative discipline. It's one of the reasons we come to church. What we're doing this morning is part of formative discipline. We have growth groups. We have discipleship classes. We have conversations and all sorts of things going on. Questions being asked. All of this stuff is the positive side of church discipline. It's formative. It's a help. It's encouraging. It's a blessing. It's God-given for our good. These things are the stake that help the tree to grow straight. We're learning together, encouraging one another, sharing one another's difficulties, trying to help each other. And the actual environment itself should be a help and a positive, formative influence on us. I think someone uh, reminded me this week, uh, from time to time we have a little preaching group. Some of you know about this. And we meet with other church leaders who we know. And uh, we probably do it every couple of months or so. And this week it was here. And a few other ministers came. We had some coffee and sandwiches upstairs. And then we all talk about what we're going to preach on this Sunday. And then rip each other's sermons to shreds. I've said to you before, it's one of the things I look forward to the most. Richard uh, was there this week. It's the first one Richard went to. He, he, he had the benefit of not preaching this Sunday. So he could just listen and... Uh, but I was telling them, I'm uh, going to be preaching this Sunday about church discipline. And I was reminded by uh, one of the guys who was there of Paul's words to Timothy. In, uh, in, in the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was a younger man. Paul was coming to the end of his ministry, his life. 
And you'll remember in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he talks about... Well, let's turn to it, shall we? So I don't uh, quote it wrong. 2 Timothy, uh, let me give you a page number here. Um, Page 1195. Paul's right to Timothy... And he says, um, he says in verse three, I thank God, Timothy, and my, I thank God, whom I serve, Timothy, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. And then he says in verse five, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois. And in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy had had stakes that had helped him to grow straight. His grandmother and his mother had taught him. If you flick over the page to chapter 3. And verse 14. What does he say to Timothy as Timothy's embarking on his ministry, a difficult ministry? Actually, Timothy is working in Ephesus, and the church has got a lot of problems in it. But he says to Timothy in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you heard it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Can you see what Paul's saying to Timothy? He has been in an environment where there's been formative discipline and he's grown. And uh, people in his family, people in his church, Paul himself, they've all had a significant positive influence in this young man's life. And Paul writes to him says, remember what you've been taught, Timothy? Remember the stake that you've grown up alongside? So this is formative discipline. Think a little bit with me for a moment about uh, parenting, if you dare. <laughs> parenting, what's it all about? Hmm. When I think about my own home, one of the most important things I think that um, Jay and I have thought is that actually the environment that children grow up in is probably the most significant influence upon them. Whatever happens to them outside of the home, the thing that influences them the most is the, is the environment at home. How we live and talk, the things we laugh at, the things we cry at, the things that wind us up, the things that make us excited, all contribute to a tone being set in a home. This is the air that our kids breathe. There are times when we talk about what's right and wrong. There are times in our home where we'll read the Bible, we'll pray. We'll talk to one another about why things are like they are. And all of that stuff is formative. There's not a hint of anything in that that's confrontational or difficult or negative. It is one of the most exciting things in life to see children growing up. It's a huge privilege. But there are times in our home, and those of you who've been in our home will know this, when another kind of discipline has to kick in which is not formative, is corrective. And this is harder because it means that there are wrong behaviours that are being challenged 
and corrected and put right. Just to talk a little bit on a personal level, in our home, Jane and I decided, I don't know where we learnt this, but we, we felt very early on that there were two basic things that we would really, I want to say, not tolerate, if you like. There are many things in, in a home that happen that are accidents, part of growing up, being clumsy, just being tired. Uh, children need a lot of understanding. And sometimes it's hard to work out what's naughty behaviour and what is just immaturity. But the two things that we uh, identified really were defiance and spitefulness. They, they were two things that we felt that's, that's not good behaviour. And both of those things have the word deliberate before them. If a child is asked to do something and they go, no, I'm not doing it. Shake it. That, that's deliberate, willful refusal. That's defiance. You can't go through life, living life like that. And spitefulness, when there's deliberately hateful, nasty, malicious behaviour. When you see one child hating another just to kind of get their own way. It's deliberate. It's nasty. Sometimes they do it when you're not watching. Sometimes they do it when you are watching. But when those two things, defiance and spitefulness, those things warrant corrective discipline, don't they? This might be some stern words when the children were little. It might have been a little smack. It might have involved some sanction. It would always involve a conversation with the child about why that behaviour was wrong. Sometimes there'd be an insistence on apologies being made and reconciliation being sought. Now what was the aim in all of that? To crush them? To overwhelm them with our superior intelligence? To control them? No. The aim of that discipline, surely, is to love them, isn't it? And to grow them. And to help them to be healthy and mature. The formative and the corrective are both needed in the home. Actually, God himself is the great example of this, isn't he? There's a little passage in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs written by a very wise man. And he said this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. I do like this verse because one of the things it shows is that sound discipline is not incompatible with love, but is actually a necessary part of love, isn't it? The verse also implies that if, if the son has an attitude problem that says, I hate my dad because he's disciplined. Oh, There's something deeply, deeply worrying about that. We all should have the grace 
to submit to discipline, to be humble, to be teachable, to be correctable, and not to shake our fist when someone... Sound discipline is not incompatible with love. We're not the finished article yet, and we need discipline, both formative and sometimes corrective. Well, we need to move on. I'm not, I'm not saying, by the way, that church is the same as home, but yeah, I'm trying to draw parallels of how formative and corrective discipline works. Our second question then was, what does the Bible teach about discipline? Um, one of the most famous passages in the Bible that deals with this subject is in Matthew's Gospel. And we need to turn there. Matthew chapter 18. And it's good for us to go back to the words of Jesus himself. Um, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. I should say that this, this passage is one of the most under, misunderstood passages in the Bible. It's page 985. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. One of the reasons it's misunderstood is because in, in the NIV here, the translation says, if your brother sins against you, you'll notice there's a little footnote there and at the bottom of the page it says, some manuscripts do not have the words against you. So there are many manuscripts that say, that what this verse says is, if your brother sins, comma, go and show him his fault. I don't know why there's a difference between some manuscripts, but I, I, I think it, it is likely that the words against you uh, were, were not part of the original. That's a complicated kind of textual thing. I mean, it, someone sinning against you is still sinning, so it's part of that. But I think for that reason, this passage seems to only relate to people who've offended you. But actually, I don't think this passage is just talking about people who offend you. It's actually talking about seeing your fellow Christian in trouble. Your fellow Christian is going astray. And, it, and it's saying, go and talk to him. And that involves all of us. So we'll come back to that a little later. But uh, this is the most famous passage. Something's gone wrong. It needs to be put right. The overview here is, well, let's read it. If your brother sins against you, in brackets, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector who were the worst criminals in their society. Wow. This is Jesus, the man of love. The prince of peace, as he's described, saying, throw them all. <laughs> What's that all about? Is he just being really hard and severe here? Well, I want you to notice some things in this passage. Very interesting passage it is too. First of all, I want you to notice that the aim of all discipline is always health and restoration. Corrective discipline even is not designed to punish so much as to restore healthy behaviours and relationships. 
What is really interesting, we were talking about this the other day in our preaching group, is that this passage comes between the parable of the lost sheep, which is all about grace, and after that, it's the parable of the guy who got let off a million quid and then kicked his mate's head in because he owed him 50p, which is all about forgiveness, or unforgiveness, really, more to the point. And right in the middle, then, there's this little section about if your brother sins, go and talk to him. So what Jesus is saying is, I want you to pursue one another in love. And the idea is that there'll be restoration and that reconciliation and health will be promoted. Don't ignore poor or bad behaviour, but deal with it. And you don't necessarily have to deal with it with everyone, but go and talk to him. Have a coffee. Go and, go and tell your friend, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? <laughs> if your friend says, no, I'm not okay, get lost, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> then maybe you need to take someone else and say, listen, we're both worried about you. We don't want to embarrass you or humiliate you, but this is not good. You're a Christian. And if the person says, I told you to leave me alone, now both of you get lost, then tell it to the chair. What, what is the idea behind all that? The idea behind all that is that the person will come to repentance. It isn't to embarrass them or to crush them but to bring them to repentance and forgiveness. Jesus even says here, doesn't he, if he listens to you, you've won him over. Hallelujah. That's the aim of it, not to crush him, but to win him. You'll be clear and straight and able to move on. There is an example of this happening in the New Testament in the church in Corinth. Um, There was a man in the church... He was basically shacking up with his stepmom, his dad's wife. They must have separated. He, he was effectively a toy boy. He entered into a relationship with his dad's wife, not his mum, but his stepmom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you think churches are perfect, this is a good example of one that isn't, it's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to them and says, what are you doing bragging about it? I don't, it, it? Paul doesn't say why they were bragging or what they were bragging about. Did they think that the, the gospel's all about grace? So aren't we wonderful to accept this man who's doing something so wrong? Did, did he mean that? I've no idea. But he said, shouldn't you rather have put this man out of the church? That's what he says to him in Corinthians chapter 5. His behaviour is wrong. Even someone who wasn't in a church could see that that was wrong. And you're celebrating him as if he's some kind of hero, toy boy type character. Go on, son. (laughs) And this is a church. (coughs) Yet later on, Paul writes again to this church, helpfully, the letter's called 2 Corinthians. And it seems that this man has come to his senses and repented. And do you know what Paul says later? He says this in 2 Corinthians Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him to reaffirm your love for him. What what, what a... Paul isn't just being severe. What what he's wanting is to exercise some corrective discipline. And when the man's responded to it, he says, welcome him back. 
there's always opportunity for repentance, a new start, forgiveness, reconciliation. You can see this in the way that Jesus escalates an issue. And I think the sin that Jesus is really identifying is the sin of a stubborn refusal to repent, isn't he? The the way that Jesus escalates this. And uh, he does it in two ways, doesn't he? He escalates it, first of all, from being a private issue to a public one. I think generally it's a good thing that issues could be sorted out with a focus on forgiveness and reconciliation privately. Not all things are matters for everyone to know. We shouldn't immediately rush to tell everyone or stand up in public and rebuke someone. Or This is designed by Jesus to protect people and to give space to thought, sort things out behind the scenes. And we should say as well that this kind of corrective discipline that Jesus talked about is not designed as a method of getting personal revenge for an insult. That kind of thing ought to be covered by love. Not by dragging someone... (laughs) If someone... That's that's why I think this kind of translation is not a good one. The corrective discipline is never a way of getting personal revenge. The aim is always restoration and reconciliation. And the first port of call, according to Jesus, is that we talk to one another privately with the idea of being reconciled. I think there's another escalation here, though, that, that goes from the individual to the corporate. And we've, uh, we've seen that. This is not just dealing with personal upset, but dealing with obvious sin in, in people's lives. The point is, that we in a church should be looking out for one another. And there are times when we should speak truthfully to each other if we see one another going astray in some way. Let me give you some uh, other examples from the Bible to back this up. We're, we're going to jump around the yellow pages, let your fingers do the walking. What about uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1? Page 1172. Page 1172. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. This is Paul writing to a different set of churches. And he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. That's a lovely verse, isn't it? If you see someone struggling, go to him and talk to him. And don't go to him intending to poke his eye out. Restore him gently. It says in verse 2 there, carry each other's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We'll come back to that idea in a little while. Um... What about um, Hebrews and chapter 3? That's uh, a few pages further on. Hebrews chapter 3 is on page 1202. Well, 1203 actually. Uh, see, see what this verse says here. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. The writer says, See to it, brothers 
that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from a living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Did you see how he wrote to them in the plural? See to it, brothers, that none of you, but encourage one another every day. Talk to one another. Go to one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. See to it that none of you drifts away. You're in the same family. Be looking out for one another. If someone falls, help to pick them up. So there again, this idea of individuals helping one another. And I'll be read to us from Ephesians, where Paul talks about speaking the truth in love to one another. Why? So that we can all grow. This sort of corrective discipline is not based on personal whims. It's not like, you know, I don't like you, can I have a little word? <laughs> it's not, this is not what it's all about, is it? This, this is about, the, it's not about what I do or don't like or someone who irritates me. This is about, we're Christians, we're seeking to follow God's word. This is about getting alongside someone and saying, look, look at what the Bible says. And we should be doing this together, shouldn't we? This isn't about chemistry and being, this is about together encouraging one another to live as Christian people. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the passage that Abby read, verse 1, he said, live a life that is worthy of the calling you've received. That's what we should be encouraging one another to do. Not picking holes at each other's, the, the things that irritate We're all different. We're not meant to be clones of each other, but we are to encourage one another in our Christian faith and life. And if we don't, we're missing out on something really important. Isn't it amazing in this series how much we've seen that a church family is not individualistic but corporate togetherness? I could give you the example of, um, I know that Rich and Jai and Ben Keane have been meeting maybe once a fortnight on a Wednesday afternoon. I hope they won't mind. Uh, Rich said to me in the, the week you should use this as illustration. I didn't ask Jai's permission. But they meet and they ask each other questions. How are you doing? How are your own personal devotions going? What are you learning in the Bible at the moment? And what, what they're doing is keeping one another accountable and keen. And they've given each other permission. You can ask me any question you like. That's good, isn't it? Encourage one another daily. That's what they're doing. Why is it so hard to be involved in each other's lives? Well, we don't want to cause offence, do we? How many times do Christians say, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, Jesus said, do not judge. It's not our job as Christians to judge one another. Jesus said it. But that's not what Jesus meant. There is a sense in which we should be looking out for one another. We should be caring for one another. We should, in one sense, be judging one another, not in a hypocritical way, not in a domineering way, but we should certainly be looking out for one another in a healthy way. Some people might say, it's not to do with me. Each to their own. 
I'm not getting involved. How often do you hear that in our culture? If they want to do that, it's up to them. That isn't the attitude that people in a church family should have. It's not to do with me, what they're doing. It is something to do with you, what they're doing. They're your brother and sister in Christ. Was it Cain and Abel, one of them murdered the other, and God went to speak to the murderer, and what did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? What are you coming? He just killed him. <laughs> That's it. We shouldn't have that attitude, should we? Am I supposed to be my brother's keeper? No, I can hardly look after myself. We, we should be looking out for one another. It's not good enough for Christians to say it's not to do with me. That isn't love. That is lazy and a bit ignorant, in my opinion. The third thing that we might say is, I'm not getting involved, it'll only do damage. That's similar to the first one, it'll cause offence. I think this is one of the reasons why parents sometimes shy away from corrective discipline in the home. You know, I don't want to damage my little Johnny's self-esteem. I mean, if I... um, if I tell him off, you know, he's going to grow up with a chip on his shoulder. He'll grow up with far worse problems if you don't lovingly exert discipline in a corrective way. If we go about this in a stupid way, it will do damage. But that is not an excuse. In churches, you won't find anything about church discipline in the positive Bible and it is true, in church, we don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, no one will ever come to church. We'll just put people off. It'll do damage. It'll affect evangelism. Actually, you know, the churches that take the gospel seriously are the churches that grow and are healthy. When we dilute and shy away from causing offence and just try and all be nice and icy, that's when things start to slide and drift. It isn't about being pragmatic, about growing. It's about being healthy. And we can't hide behind these excuses. Why is it so hard for us to be involved in each other's lives? Well, the last thing that Jesus says there, uh, ultimate sanction, I suppose, is the idea of exclusion. And we need to just come on to deal with this. Um, These are hard words. And here they are in the Bible from Jesus' own lips. After all this escalation and care and opportunity to repent, there may come a point where a person just digs in their heels and says, I'm not doing it. And Jesus says, after all has been said and done, after every effort in all gentleness and love has been made to win the other person, there comes a point where we have to say, it's time to say goodbye. And Jesus says here, to to exclude such a person. They're no longer part of the church family. They're not really living a Christian life anymore. And that, according to Jesus, is the ultimate sanction. It's very rare. And the aim, always again, is restoration, as we saw in Corinthians. Let me, can I show you some examples of this in the New Testament? Jesus said this, but there are many examples in the New Testament. Um, We don't need to change them all, but if you're making notes, let me give you some references. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul speaks about laziness. And the problem was that some Christians were saying, Jesus is coming back any time, 
So I'm going to pack my job in. You might come back tomorrow. I don't want to be bothered about this world. Paul says, they're just really idle and don't want to work. And they're using their theology and defending their laziness by saying it's God's will. Do you know what Paul said? Do not associate with them so that they will feel ashamed. It's the same idea. What he's tried to do is correct their poor behaviour and he says to the Christians in the church, don't associate with them so that they'll be ashamed and come to their senses. Repent. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul speaks of people who once claimed to be believers but have made a complete shipwreck of their faith. And he says something very hard. This is Paul. He says, there's two men, Hymenius and Alexander. And Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What a thing for a Christian man to say. I think what Paul means is they've reached a point where he just can't say or do anything else for them. And what they need is a period of just being left alone to reap what they've sown. In the hope that one day they'll come to their senses and repent and come back. That's really what Paul's trying to say there. His aim is for them to be restored, if that's possible. But he says to them, I've handed them over, we have to leave them alone. I think sometimes pastorally, there can be times when formative discipline, what you hope, I think, is that you can sort problems out before they happen with positive formative discipline, the state that helps the tree grow. Sometimes that can't happen if someone says, I'm not having that, I'm going to go my own way. And, but pastorally, sometimes the issue can't be sorted out beforehand, it needs the pieces picking up afterwards. And when someone maybe comes to a sense of, I shouldn't really have done that, and I really want to put this right, I'm miserable, I'm, I shouldn't have done that. And it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to, to come back and to apologise and repent. And I remember reading one church leader who planted a new church, and when the church was very small, there was only about 40 people in it, he said he was hoping Jesus would come back to uh, get him out of the message started by creating a church. And he said there was so much immaturity and people just wanting to get power, fights, and there were a few people he had to ask to leave. I'm sorry, but that is not appropriate behaviour. And yet later on as the church grew, they had matured and they came back and they said, you know, we really did treat you badly in the church. We were very immature. We're sorry. Can we come and join with what you're doing now? Some of those people were leaders later on in the church. There's always room and space for repentance and reconciliation. Leaders are not exempt from this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Paul says to Timothy that if there's an accusation against an elder or a leader, there certainly should be witnesses to that rather than just one person saying, I don't like him. But if an elder is shown to have... uh, but in sin, Paul says they should be publicly rebuked. Why? So that the church will know what constitutes good behaviour and poor behaviour. There should be apologies and 
Sometimes things do need to be dealt with publicly. Titus chapter 3, we went through Titus last year, didn't we? Titus chapter 3, verse 19. Um, Paul says to Titus there, warn a divisive person once, and then warn him again. And after that, I have nothing to do with him. It's the same principle of Jesus, isn't it? Go and torture him. Tell him to wind his neck in. Do it privately. And if he won't listen, give him another chance and do it again. If he, if he, if he won't listen after all that, just have nothing to do with him. He's, he's going to cause division and upset and heartache in the church. It needs to be dealt with. So Paul uses this language, put them out of the church, have nothing to do with them, don't associate with them, rebuke them publicly. Is Paul just like some sort of really hard, strict chap? Well, no, Jesus, the man of love, said, treat them like a tax collector. (laughs) The point is, there's a process here. And where the offence is serious and there's no sign of repentance, what there is is a hardness. There is a point at which the whole church together need to take action. So let's uh, try and sum up what church discipline should look like then. I tried to put this slide together. Can you see that? Um, Church discipline should be natural. It should be relational. And sometimes, sadly, it will need to be serious. And hopefully not. It should be natural in the sense that the general environment of teaching and studying and encouraging and being examples to one another, all of that should shape us positively and help us to grow. And there should be relationships that are encouraging, challenging. We should be involved in each other's lives. And that too should be a challenge and it should be formative. But there should be processes from time to time that will escalate more serious issues. I hope you can see that serious corrective discipline is not for the weak who fall and struggle and who are genuinely seeking to follow Jesus. That kind of corrective discipline is not for beating up the weak who are facing the right way but finding things hard. People like that need our love and care and encouragement. These serious processes are for people who are shaking their fist and saying, I won't. Defiance, unrepentant. It isn't for those who make mistakes, but for those who refuse to learn from them. And ultimately, the serious sanctions that Jesus and Peter talk about are not for little things. You know, so-and-so's got a pride issue. <laughs> We've all got pride issues. Let's put them on a chair. No, it's not about that. The, these sanctions are for where the unity of the church, the purity of its doctrine, or the honour of Jesus are compromised in a serious way then the church should not turn a blind eye, but should deal with issues like that. I think in a way our series is touching all of these things, our preaching and teaching and growth groups all provide an environment, encouraging healthy relationships where we're looking out for one another and caring for one another. And now we're seeing that there are more serious issues at times that will need to be dealt with. 
Why is church discipline important? Very quickly, I want to say three things. Church discipline is important because it purifies the church. The health of the church is strengthened. No church will ever be perfect. But it must be striving to be pure and holy and different, shouldn't it? The church shouldn't be just the same as the rest of the world. The church should be a light. Church discipline is good for the person. It is good for everyone else. And I think there's times even when someone who may have been pretending to be a Christian might actually become a real one. Because the church takes seriously our behaviour together with one another. It purifies the church. Why is the church often so weak, so toothless? Is is it not because we're not taking seriously the gospel in these ways? Secondly, church discipline should strengthen our mission. It should have a positive effect on our corporate witness. One of the criticisms that's often labelled, sometimes unfairly, but sometimes fairly, at churches is, I'm never going to go to church, it's full of hypocrites. The trouble is that many churches are. And so people think, I've got people, I know people who are not Christians who are nicer than that group of vipers and snakes. Honestly, they're always at each other's throats. I'd rather not even go there, thank you very much. Quite rightly as well. This kind of discipline should strengthen our mission in the sense that what we're presenting to the outside world is a church that is striving to be like Jesus. It's not just a little club. It's a serious business. And the third and most important reason, I suppose, is that church discipline will honour Jesus. This is his church, not mine. It is his project. It's his invention. Sometimes at home, you know, we're looking for handymen and we'll, you know, we need a plasterer. And I'll want to know whether he's any good before he comes and plasters my ceiling. So I'll ask people, you know, have you done a good job at your house? Oh no, there was lumps all over it. Well, I'll ask someone else then. Or a joiner, or whatever. You know, workmen are judged by what they make, aren't they? And isn't, isn't it the case that the world will judge Jesus by what he makes? The church is his body. If the church is a waste of space, what does that say about his reputation? There is a way for us to live. That Paul said it to the church of Ephesus. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You shouldn't just be drifting through life thinking these things don't matter. People will judge Jesus by how you live individually and corporately as a church. And you will either bring glory to him or you will be an insult to him. If you're claiming to be a Christian, never forget that people will judge Jesus by the way you live. The unity and purpose and love in a church is meant to be a dynamic evidence of God being at work in human hearts. And the idea is that others will see what the church is like and hopefully they'll see something of Jesus they're not going to see perfection but they're going to see authenticity honesty, reality and they're going to see people making progress and growing do you want to belong to a church family like that? I do 
Well, I said last week, what can we learn? Being practical. I've been really trying to ponder this this week. I think it's helpful for us to think about these subjects. But the, the question is, how do we apply this? You know, being practical. I think uh, being a Christian is clearly a serious business. It involves grace and acceptance and forgiveness and reconciliation. But it also involves serious intent and discipline and growth and holiness and purity. Both those things. Again, we're seeing that Christianity is not just individualistic, but relational. And the truth is, we should be examining our own hearts. We should be talking to one another about our struggles, our joys. Certainly the task of leaders, but we should be doing that, all of us together. There's no place here for defensiveness in a way. Part of being a member of a church is having the willingness to invest in each other's lives and to submit to the kind of formative and corrective discipline that we've talked about. When someone becomes a member of church, what they're really saying is, look after me, help me, encourage me, challenge me and if necessary even take me to task I don't want to fall away so help me to remain faithful as a Christian if we're all doing that for one another then the church is healthy so what, what can I say practically I, I just want to say three things there's loads more I could say number one take advantage of the things that you can take advantage of be, be at the things you can. We can't all be at everything. But be there. Be involved in each other's lives. Don't hide away in the shadows. If you're struggling with something, don't just drift thinking it'll go away. Ask questions. Ask someone to pray with you. Talk to one another. Take advantage of the formative things that are there, the stakes that will help you grow straight. Secondly, think about pairing up with someone. Maybe doing some one-to-one. Often, we, well, often when we talk with other people, we just fall to each other complaining, don't we? Let's have a coffee and have a good morning and the winds. And... One of the things that we've been doing this year, Joy and Rich and I, is we've, been re- we, we've committed to reading a good book. We're reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. J- we call him J.I. Packer. His name's James. J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer. What we do is we read a chapter... And then we meet and we talk about what struck us in that chapter and what we can learn. And then we pray. Last week we had a prayer meeting at half seven, so we went to the Greasy Spoon across the road. And uh, we were having a chat about Packer and, and then we were praying when we got back here to the office later on. Maybe you could read a good book with someone else, meet up for a coffee to talk about it. Maybe you could study a book of the Bible with someone else. I think the point is to be accountable, isn't it? Do you ever ask someone else, what have you been learning in your Bible reading recently? Oh, that'd be a good question, wouldn't it? What have you been learning? No, I asked you first. (laughs) Do we talk like that? Do we talk about the things of God? Are we just too shy to do it? I don't know. Maybe you could pair up with someone. I don't know. It's just a suggestion. I'm not telling you all to do it, but 
You might benefit from having a Christian friend that you could meet with every month or something. And that's relational, isn't it? Thirdly, I just want to talk about this. This is the last thing, and with this we're done. We, we do have in our church some membership documentation. When someone becomes a member of our church, we do give people stuff to think about and read. And, but I think it would be good for us to rewrite uh, some of the things that we've got. And one of the things I'd like to do, and we've got some of this information already, is to put together what I would call like a covenant, a church covenant. I can't think of a better word. Like a pledge, I don't know. Something you could put on the wall. And, um, and it's the kind of thing that, it's like a detail of all the things that we're committing to as we follow Christ together corporately in this church. I, I think there's a real value in not just me or Rich or us writing that and foisting it on you. I think, as a church family, we should have a go together corporately at writing our own church covenant that we can all say, I was part of writing that. I buy into that. And I think we can use that then to measure the kind of progress we're making. Well, just to close with, just as a challenge, we've been talking about having another away day. And I think we're going to plan to do that. We haven't picked a date yet. But I think it would be good for us to spend some time on an away day together working out our own church covenant that we could put on the wall, we could all sign our names to and say, that's what being part of my church is all about. I'm committed to that. And I think we could do that together as an exercise. So we'll set a date for that, maybe sometime in May like we did last year. And everyone's welcome to come and we'll talk about that. Thinking, I think that's a good practical way of letting this series shape what we're doing. And in the meantime, maybe what we'll do is circulate some examples of other churches, old and new, large and small, who have got church covenants so that you can read some and get some examples of uh, some good practice. Great, well, that's it, I'm done. So let's pray, shall we? And then we're going to sing. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the Bible. We thank you that it doesn't shy away from reality and uh, conflict and, and difficulty. Lord, we thank you so much for the series that we've been doing. We thank you that we're dealing with some difficult issues. And we really pray that you will help us together uh, to put down uh, really strong foundations here in our church. We pray, Lord, that we might um, really be serious in following Christ and being committed in love to one another, that we might genuinely be involved in each other's lives, praying, encouraging, challenging one another. We pray, O oh Lord, that our church would be healthy and that it would have impact both in our lives and in the lives of our community. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and help us with these things. For the honour of Jesus and his great name, we ask it. Amen.